Good morning. I will be reading the scripture today. It comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if we can all open our books to that. All right. So it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Cornelius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. To Joseph, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in the Galilee of Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to the firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. That very simple, straightforward rendition of the birth of Jesus Christ describes the greatest moment in the history of the world. 2,000 plus years ago, the creator of the universe, the eternal God, entered human society as a baby. The creator of the universe put on humanity. The Lord of heaven came to earth to live with us. And on a night like every other night, no fanfare, No celebration by anybody there in that little town, a child was born. And it was a night like every other night, but it was not a child like every other child. The child was the Lord Jesus Christ. As one author put it, God and man fused together in indivisible oneness. The birth was so monumental that he became the focal point of history, the apex, the the, the peak. All history before the birth is B.C., before Christ, though they're trying to rename those letters. All history since is A.D., Anno Domini, Latin for the year of our Lord. It's become probably the most familiar story in the Bible, and because it's so familiar, it's easy to just kind of read through it once again and miss some fairly profound truths. And so as we look at this event and the events surrounding it, my prayer as I've been preparing this has been that the Lord would open our eyes and our hearts perhaps to something new, something just a little bit different, something a little bit greater than perhaps we have seen before. Now, in chapter 1 of Luke, our story is from chapter 2, but in chapter 1, we have the birth of John the Baptist, the one who is to be the forerunner, uh, the announcer of the Messiah. We also have the announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary. Uh, He told her that she was going to have a child, and that child would be born to her as a virgin, And and that that child would be the son of the Most High, and he would reign on the throne of David forever, and his kingdom would never end. And she asked him in verses 31 to 35 of chapter 1, how is that going to be since I'm a virgin? And the angel Gabriel told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most uh, Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
So now here in chapter 2, the simple story of the birth of Jesus Christ is told by Luke. Now as simple as a story is, what's actually going on here is profound and actually quite widespread. Now everybody in Israel knew that the Messiah was coming at some point, and they knew certain things about the Messiah. They knew the Messiah would come and be king. Uh, He would come and he would be in the line of King David from the Old Testament. He would reign on the throne in in Jerusalem and he would establish a glorious kingdom uh, for Israel. And one of the things that was also absolutely clear about the Messiah is that he had a very specific place where he was going to be born and that, as we know, is Bethlehem. And God did some amazing things to make it happen exactly and precisely on time and in the right place. So let's take a look at what's going on here uh, in the setting of this great story, which shows us how God orchestrates all kinds of things to bring his plan to fruition. Luke gives us a world setting. He gives us a national setting with Israel, and he gives us a very personal setting as well. He's coming to be, Jesus is coming to be the Savior of the world, and it's important for us to understand the setting of the world uh, when he comes. He's coming to be the Messiah to Israel, and so it's important to understand the prophetic um, uh, scriptures that relate to Israel. And he's coming to be the Savior of every individual who puts their trust in him, So it's important to understand something of the personal circumstances of Mary and Joseph as well. Now all Luke says about the actual birth of Jesus is in the first part of verse 7, she gave birth. Done. But what's what's coming together at that moment involves the world, involves the nation, and involves young Joseph and Mary very personally. So let's take a look at the world setting briefly, and I I find this fascinating. We find the world setting in verses 1 and 2, excuse me, 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 2. In those days, Caesar, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, it was absolutely critical that Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem, which was their family city. So they would be there when the Messiah was born according to the prophecies. Everything had to come together. Little did Caesar Augustus know, however, that he was being moved by the Spirit of God to do exactly what he did on time and on schedule to bring about exactly the result that God wanted. There were just a few days in which Joseph and Mary had to be in Bethlehem, and it had to be right at the very time of the birth of Jesus. And God knew exactly when that moment was. He knew exactly which day was going to happen. He knew when when they had to be there. He had planned it uh, all, all for it to happen together under the authority and power of Caesar, who was geographically far removed from Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a long ways away from Rome. He was totally removed from the purposes of God as far as he was concerned. He, completely, he was completely ignorant of the Word of God. 
But in spite of all of that, he was a main character in bringing about the prophecy uh, to make sure that it came to pass, which shows, as one commentator put it, the mighty, incomprehensible, providential work of Almighty God. Verse, uh, verse 1 says, in those days. Question, what days? Which days? Well, the days already spoken of in chapter 1, verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. In those days, uh, Herod was still on the throne and, and was going to be on the throne for a few years after Jesus was born. Uh, he, of course, was the one that uh, issued the edict, all male children two years and, and younger be killed. It was in the days of the time period when the angel Gabriel came to Zacharias and Elizabeth to uh, share with him about John the Baptist. It was in the same days that Gabriel came to Mary. It was in the same days when John the Baptist was born. And that's really the best that we can come to dating the birth of Christ in those days. Sometime in those days. It goes on to say, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Now, a decree is an imperial edict. And this particular edict, this order, coming from Rome, had critical bearing, as we know, on the birth of Christ. It came from the reigning Caesar of the day, who was Caesar Augustus. Um, now, Caesar Augustus was a very, very important character in this whole time period. Now, remember, we're talking about the setting, the world setting uh, that, that's going on here. Augustus reigned from 27 years before Christ to about 14 years after Christ was born. He was actually a remarkable man, um, great military, political, and social skills with which he put to end all civil unrest. All civil war wars came to an end. The, he expanded the Roman em Empire from the west of Europe deep into the Middle East, as far east as the desert region of Iraq today. He was the one who brought in the amazing Pax Romana. You'll remember hearing about that. That's the Roman peace that actually lasted for about 200 years, a time of amazing peace. He built massive roadways and very effective transportation systems all over the area in all, all different directions. And uh, this all basically ended up facilitating the easy and rapid spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he had no, no clue that that's what he was doing. It was perfect timing. Perfect timing. Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, But when the set time had fully come, all that had to be put into place, God sent his son. When everything was ready, God sent his son. And Caesar Augustus played a huge role in setting up the time for the Son of God to arrive. I find that amazing. He literally created the world that facilitated the spread of the gospel. That was all prepared ahead of time. And then Caesar made an edict that caused Joseph and Mary to have to go by a certain date to Bethlehem where they would then have the baby and Fulfill prophecy. It says in verse 3, and this is the point of, of all of this, and everyone went to their own town to register. 
That sets a scene for the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And we're going to look at that in just a moment here. But there's no other reason why they're going to travel to Bethlehem at a time like that. No other reason possible. And so this was the world setting. This was how God was controlling all the world events, all the rulers that were in the world at that, uh, that time, uh, it became crucial to the birth of his son. Folks, there are no accidental occurrences in God's economy. The Holy Spirit makes sure that everything is put into place when it's supposed to be put in place. And if the Emperor Augustus made the decision three months earlier, or three months later, or even a month earlier, or a month later, maybe even a week earlier, or a week later, Jesus wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem. But he was. God knew how long it would take to get the registration machinery in place. That was a complicated situation. And if you go back into history, this edict to register for taxation purposes was actually given three years before this event actually happened. But it took a long time for them to get everything all set up uh, so that everybody could register. And on top of that, King Herod and the Jewish people hated being ruled and ordered by Rome. So they drug their feet. Rome was a pagan nation. They should have nothing to do with Israel. They hated to be taxed by them, and so they resisted and dragged their feet. And you know what? God knew how long Herod and the Jewish people were going to drag their feet. Isn't that amazing? Every single detail was in the hand of Almighty God, and though we don't see it sometimes, and we don't understand sometimes what we see and what's going on, God still directs history. And He still holds every king and every monarch and every ruler in His hand for His own purposes. God knew how long it would take for that very young couple, probably in their teens, to trek those 85 or 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, for them to be in Bethlehem for just a few days, but it was going to be in those few days that his son was going to be born. So that's kind of the world setting which sets a scene for the coming of the Messiah. Now we come to the national setting, that which has to do with Israel itself. And the nation of Israel has always been connected to Scripture. We know that from the very beginning to the very end. And the Scripture was very, very specific about where the Messiah was to be born. So in verses 4 and 5 of Luke chapter 2, he writes, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a baby, a child. Now, there's an Old Testament prophecy that Luke references but does not specify, but everybody knew that prophecy. In fact, it may have been one of the best-known prophecies among the Jewish people because it was very specific, and that was Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where he said that the Messiah was going to be born in a village called Bethlehem. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah. Now, not only was it a small little town, a small little village, size-wise, but that was also a way of saying, you know, it's really a rather insignificant little town over on the side south of Jerusalem. 
So the Jews all knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. At least that's what the Old Testament said. It was very specific. Did you know that there were two Bethlehems? It's true. If you, if you take a look at the map, one was up north near Nazareth. Now, that, that would have been the easiest for Mary and Joseph to go through. It was right, right across a short, a short walk from Nazareth. The other was down south of Jerusalem. And that's why God had Micah specify Bethlehem Ephrathah. If you go back to Genesis, I think it was Genesis chapter 35, the town of Bethlehem used to be called Ephrathah. And so this was a very specific a pinpointing of which Bethlehem. Just south of Jerusalem there. God didn't want anyone to misunderstand or be confused. And Luke shows us how God orchestrated the birth of Messiah in that Bethlehem. An explicit uh, fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, it really was an amazing work of God because if, if things had just gone on naturally, Jesus never would have been born in Bethlehem. If there had been no edict, if nothing was, was changing, they would have been sitting in Nazareth. But he had to go there. He had to, he had to be born there because it was foretold, and God accomplishes everything he foretells. So how do we know, actually, that it was the Messiah that Micah was talking about? Because the next line in that same verse says, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He is going to be an eternal being. There will be a ruler born in Bethlehem who, will, uh, will, who has been alive forever. That's a very specific prophecy. This is a, another way of saying that his origins, his beginnings, are from eternity past. An eternal existing one will become ruler born in Jerusalem. In Bethlehem, excuse me. They knew that Bethlehem was to be the place of the Messiah and it becomes very important because when Caesar Augustus put that census into place, the date that he established was going to be the actual time that Christ was born. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. He went up to Bethlehem. That's interesting too. He went up to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is not north of Nazareth. Usually when we look at a map, we say we go up or we go down. But Bethlehem, they went up to Bethlehem because uh, Bethlehem was 2,500 feet in elevation, higher than Nazareth. <laughs> Ladies here, can you imagine nine months pregnant within a few days of giving birth and you've got to climb a mountain 2,500 feet? So they went up to Bethlehem, the town of David. Now this is interesting because in the Old Testament, such as 2 Samuel chapter 5 and other places, you'll find that uh, the city of David refers to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, but it refers to Jerusalem because that's where David sat on the throne. That's where he ruled from. It's where he reigned but in our text this morning, Bethlehem is, is referred to the town of, of David because that's where David was born. So that was his original town. So God chose Bethlehem where the origins of David were to place the human origin of Jesus in the same place. It's all kind of neat. Now Luke tells us in chapter 1, verses 25 and 26, that Joseph was a descendant of David. Now that was very important. And if you were to read in chapter 3, we'd also find out that Mary also was a descendant of David. 
And why is that important? Because royalty and heritage pass through the bloodline and usually through the Father. And God covered all the bases here. Through Mary, Jesus had the royal bloodline. And through his earthly father, Joseph, Jesus had the legal right to become the ruler, to become king. So they went down to register because they were supposed to register in the house of their ancestors. God moved them there to fulfill that clear statement from the prophet Micah. And there in Bethlehem, an amazing thing happened. A, man by, a pastor by the name of Kent Hughes of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. Some of you have heard of the church there at the university and said it, said it this way. The baby Mary carried was not a Caesar, a man who would become God, but a far greater wonder, the true God who would become man. So the world setting and the national setting, all fitting in with the Roman strategy and Old Testament prophecy, all melding together at one moment. And now we come to the personal setting. And this is really what's so amazing about the birth of Jesus. Now remember, we're talking about the King of Kings. We're talking about the Lord of Lords. We're talking about God Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. We're talking about the one uh, who was and is and is to come. We're talking about the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And Luke says in verses 6 and 7, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there's no space for them in the guest room. No fanfare, no trumpets, no, no lightning, no thunder, just a baby was born, wrapped in cloths, placed in a manger. Now, there are a number of significant things here that I like to point out, and uh, much of this may not be new to you, but maybe a freshness as we work into our Christmas season. While they were there, where, well, we already said, in Bethlehem, how long were they there? We don't know. A few days, a week, ten days. It doesn't say, and it doesn't matter. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Nine months, give or take a few days, a week, ten days. How often are doctors right about the due date? Rarely. But God knew even with all the walking and hiking up 2,500 feet up the, up the mountain to Bethlehem, which could have moved the progress of the little baby along, God knew precisely because God is always precise all the time. Because He's always in control. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Now Luke is careful to tell us that she gave birth to her firstborn son. Prototokos, that's a Greek word that was used. Firstborn. He doesn't use monogens. Monogens is a word that means only son. He didn't say that. And that's important because there are church groups today who believe that Mary was a virgin her whole life and she had no other children. Luke says prototokos, firstborn, because we know Mary had a number of sons and daughters afterwards. In fact, Matthew chapter 1, verse 25 tells us that Joseph did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, 
Until means they did. So after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had normal relations, just like any other husband and wife would have had. And they had boys, and they had girls. In Matthew chapter two, 12, excuse me, we're introduced to Jesus' brothers. In chapter 13, we're even uh, given names of four of them. In verse 56, isn't this the carpenter's son, the people were saying? Isn't this uh, his mother's name, Mary? All normal people? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Not talking about Iscariot. Aren't all his sisters with us? The people just looked at them as an ordinary large family. Four brothers and at least two sisters, to make a plural, perhaps more than that, but at least seven kids, including Jesus. Large family. But Jesus was prototokos. He was the firstborn. There's another reason that's important, because not only is he the firstborn, which means um, that he has a right to the inheritance, or the, not only because it shows that Mary was a virgin, as, as her first, but it also shows that he had the right to inheritance, a primary right to the family inheritance. Now, now I don't believe Joseph and Mary probably had a big, a big bank account. They probably didn't have big estates to pass on uh, financially to the firstborn. But what they did have was a right to the throne of Israel. That's what was important. There hadn't been a king from the royal line of David for a long, long time time in Israel. But the royal line was still there, and it was there in the life of Joseph, and it was there in the life of Mary. And what they passed on to Jesus was the right to rule on the throne of David, as prophesied. Psalm 132, verse 11 says, The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants will I will place on your throne. Listen to what Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 23, 5 and 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. It's his name. Jesus is given the name that belongs to God in the Old Testament. That's Jehovah. And that's the name given to Jesus which verifies his identity. He is God. He is righteous. He is without sin. And he is our Savior. Only an unblemished lamb, only a righteous lamb, a life without sin could be a worthy sacrifice to God to forgive us for our sins. The Lord, our righteous Savior. So all of this majesty, all of this greatness, the King of kings and Lord of lords was wrapped in claws placed in a manger because there was no space for them in the guest room. Now, the NIV translates that correctly here. We've talked about this a number of years ago. Mary and Joseph were not pushed outside somewhere into a cave where animals were kept uh, because there wasn't any room in the house. They weren't put into some kind of a cattle stall because there's no room in a hotel, and the innkeeper said, sorry, no room, no vacancy. See, Bethlehem was their family town. They had to have relatives there, living there. And no relative is going to be refusing a place for another relative, especially this young couple who's nine months pregnant, almost ready to give birth. 
A family would have taken them in, but the town was already overflowing with people because everybody originally from Bethlehem, as we know, all had to come back to Bethlehem for the census for the, to, to register, and there's no online register, registration available. Let me remind you how a typical home was set up. Now, we looked at this about four years ago, but this is just a reminder. There would have been a main family room, a living room, uh, basically, where family with larger family would mingle. Um, they would sit around and talk and cook and eat their meals. That was kind of the, the great room, if you will. Uh, there would typically be a guest room. And with a lot of family coming, the honor of the guest room would go to the elderly. Now, off on the other side, and at a lower level with a few steps going down, uh, there would be a small area into which, at night, they would bring their smaller animals, perhaps a couple of donkeys, perhaps a couple of of sheep. Uh, Number one, to keep them from being stolen uh, during the night, and the other, animals give off a lot of body heat, and so that would have warmed up the small house in the, uh, the cool evenings. The floor would have had a slight gradient downward to make it easy to sweep all the debris and uh, trash or what, what, what have you down into that area and opening that door, sweep it outside. And then there would be a feeding trough placed right above, right at the edge of that living room area where at night the, the animals, donkeys, could just... Uh, stand right, right about head level for them, and they could, they could eat right out of the feeding trough, which made for a perfect little bassinet. Well, what about this whole thing about no room in the inn part? We hear that all the time. Again, that's been a mistranslation, unfortunately, in many translations uh, versions in the, ba- in the past. The Greek word that's translated room doesn't refer to a room, like as in an inn, it refers to a space, topos is the Greek word, as in I've got no more space in my basement to put anything else. Space. The Greek word Luke uses, which has been commonly translated as in, in some translations, is kataluma. This is not the ordinary word for a commercial inn. Remember the parable of Good Samaritan? Um, and he takes this uh, wounded man to an inn. The Greek word there is pandocheon. Pan meaning all. And the second part means to receive, to receive all. That, that was a typical word for an inn or a commercial kind of inn. But here in verse 7, Luke tells us that the kataluma was crowded. It was full. In this context, a kataluma is simply a guest room in the house. And one of the reasons we, we know that is because when Jesus told his disciples to go into town when he's preparing for the Last Supper, he told them to go find a man and tell him that the teacher asked, where's the guest room? Katluma, that's the word that Jesus used. Where's the guest room? Katluma, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room all furnished. Make preparations there. So here the the key word katluma defined in upper upper room where Jesus was, which clearly is a guest room that many private homes would have had. Sin actually makes perfect sense when you're looking at the story of the birth of Jesus, and there was no space in the guest room, and so they were not given that guest room. Now, what, what Luke is telling his readers is that Jesus was placed in a manger in the family room, because in that home there was no space 
in that guest room was already full. And so when Mary gives birth, she and Joseph were out in the larger family room. And the men were probably shooed out of the house at that moment, which is typical. The ladies would gather around Mary and help her with the birth of the child. None of them knew what child they were actually bringing into the world. Just a child. Only Joseph and Mary knew. And when this baby was born, they wrapped him in claws like they normally do any baby. Laid him in a manger, laid him in one of those feeding troughs. The song that we sung is very pertinent here. Down from his glory, ever-living story, my God and Savior came, (laughs) and Jesus was his name. Born in a manger to his own a stranger, a man of sorrows, tears, and agony. Oh, how I love him. How I adore him. My breath, my sunshine, my all in all. The great creator became my savior. And all God's fullness dwells in me. Why did he do that? Why did he who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage? Rather, he made himself what? Nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even to being wrapped up and laid in a feeding trough. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Why? Because that's how much God loves us. That's how much God loves you, how much he loves me. It was personal for Mary and Joseph, very personal. Jesus came to be personal with you as well. He wants to have that personal relationship. You know, and my prayer for this Christmas is that Jesus and his love will become more meaningful. It's already meaningful. I understand that. I know that. But that it becomes more meaningful. And and the personalness, coining a word, of that relationship will become more meaningful to you. He came to rescue us from certain death and misery and weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. He came to rescue us from a life without meaning and came to give us that meaning. He came to provide us with a new life which guarantees eternity in heaven. We, we lit the hope candle. We lit the peace candle. This all comes from Christ. The hope is our, our guarantee of everlasting life. And this morning, I guess the question we can ask is, are, are you feeling hopeless? Are you wondering what in the world is going to happen tomorrow or, or the tomorrow or tomorrow? Jesus provides that hope. Is there a lack of peace in your life? Jesus came to give you that peace. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's what he came for. That's why he came. That's why he was born. That's why he died. You know, in a moment, we're going to be singing a song we learned last week. There's a hope for everyone. The third verse says this, Come let us adore. There's hope for everyone. On the manger floor, there's hope for everyone. 
What are you waiting for? There's hope for everyone. Come, adore. There's hope for everyone. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we thank you for that hope, that assurance that you give to us. Thank you for expressing your love in your Son, Jesus Christ, willingly came to be born into this finite, uh, miserable human bodies that, that sin has done horrible things with, but His was created perfect. But He was willing to come into all of this because He loved us that much. He was willing to humble Himself because He loved us that much. He was willing to go to the cross because He loved us that much. And Father, this morning I pray that you would search our hearts and that personal relationship that you want with us. Father, is it as personal as you want? Are we taking some of those reins back? Are we taking some of that throne space back in our own lives? If we need to give that throne back to you in its totality, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And let us have that personal relationship with you on a daily basis. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.